Snowflakes also have a lot in common. Frost actually has no first name. I could have invented the sled. Are there any nevergreen trees? Snowy owls should be called snow-colored owls. Frozen snot is an upgrade. If all the other kids were getting hypothermia, would you? Mountain Dew is yellow, so not all yellow snow is gross. How many fingers can fit in a bitten? So many stars. Welcome now to Out of All Doors. Hello, and welcome to the 25th episode of Out of All Doors. I'm your host, Adam Drent, and Out of All Doors is a podcast so interested in the outdoors, it decided to make a podcast about it. As this time of year brings us its usual mixed bag of goodies and baddies, holidays, temperatures, cliched introductory phrases delivered pompously, it can be easy to forget not what Christmas is all about, but rather what Out of All Doors' role should be in the holiday festivities. Should, for example, Out of All Doors be blasted through a stereo at a holiday party? Sure. Should Out of All Doors be used as a resource for those seeking to improve the stability of their vehicles on icy surfaces? Sure, if you can figure out how, more power to you. Should Out of All Doors replace animated polar bears as the primary holiday pitchman for Coke of Cola? Sure, give us a call, Coke of Cola. I'm opening one of your cans right now. Good lord, it's full of liquid! No wonder it has such considerable heft for its relatively diminutive size. Should Out of All Doors be hung by the fire with care? Well, considering the fact that Out of All Doors only exists in a digital format, the logistics of such a feat seem like they'd be a little troublesome. But if you've got your heart set on it, then we're all for it. But you want to know what we think Out of All Doors' role in the holiday festivities should be? We think we should give you some tips on how to make your outdoor Christmas decorations stand out from the crowd of icicle-light-loving dullards. Here are all of those tips now, right on schedule. Alright, tip number one. If you're going to have a nativity scene in the front yard, go nuts with the shepherds. There can only be one Jesus, one Mary, and one Joseph, and the Christmas story doesn't say how many wise men there were, but since they brought three gifts, convention usually puts the number of wise men at three. But there are no limits on the number of shepherds you can have. My recommendation is that you go at least three figures, but if your property will accommodate a thousand or more, then fill that sucker up with as many shepherds as it can handle. Some will say that since the Christmas story doesn't specify the number of animals around the manger that you should stay conservative on the shepherds and go big on the cattle. I disagree for one simple reason. A nativity scene with hundreds or thousands of cattle is going to look like a cowboy movie, even if Joseph and Mary are wearing Bible clothes, whereas a nativity scene with hundreds of thousands of shepherds will not look like a cowboy movie unless the shepherds wear cowboy hats, which I would discourage if I were you. Number two, Christmas lights are probably the most popular form of outdoor decoration. People put them on their houses, on their bushes, and even on outbuildings, and that's fine. But what if, instead of stringing lights everywhere, you strung little plastic shepherd figurines everywhere? Sure, they don't glow in the dark, but if you pointed some enormous floodlight at the front of your house, people would be able to see the strings of tiny shepherds, whether by day or by night. Tip number three, some people like to have a fake Santa sticking out the top of their chimneys. I say have a fake shepherd sticking out the top of your chimney, or a real guy in a shepherd costume, or a real shepherd. A shepherd going down a chimney is not consistent with any holiday tradition, but shepherds are real and Santa is not, so in real life, who would you be more likely to see going down a chimney? One is unlikely, but one is impossible, and I'll take unlikely over impossible every day of the week and twice on Sunday, bringing my grand total of times I'll take unlikely over impossible to eight times per week. The math checks out. Just take my word for it. Tip number four. Some of you are probably wondering how come there aren't any sheep around if there are so many shepherds. The shepherds left the sheep in the field to come see baby Jesus, you heathen. Are the different flocks of all these shepherds out in the fields combining into one mega flock? I'll leave speculation like that to the sheep experts, but I will say that yes, they are combining into a mega flock. Tip number five, one question I get a lot is, should I make my kids dress as shepherds if they want to play in the yard so as not to appear anachronistic and thereby ruin the consistency of the scene? I always answer thusly, your yard should be so packed full of shepherds that no child, anachronistic or otherwise, should be able to fit in it. 
Number six, another question I get a lot. Is it okay to dress Mary and Joseph like shepherds too? I can't answer that. But I will say this. The Christmas story doesn't say they weren't dressed like shepherds. Number seven, another question I get a lot. Can I start dressing like a shepherd all the time, year-round, even to bed? And can I quit my job and become a shepherd, or at least commit myself full-time to appearing to be a shepherd? Yes, of course you can. And number eight, and of course there will be haters. If anyone asks you a confrontational question, such as, why so many shepherds, just do what any good shepherd would do. Shout, the Christmas story doesn't say how many shepherds there were, and then use your shepherd's crook to herd them away from your property. If there's a nearby pen that you can herd the haters into, that's great. But if not, well, I guess the wolves are in for a treat. The tips end at number eight. If I felt compelled to add two more tips just to get to a nice round ten, those last two tips would just be padding. They would probably just be two feeble attempts at wringing some content out of the moribund bodies of holiday inflatables. Well, I might as well. uh, Tip number nine, fill your holiday inflatables with water like water balloons. Then if teens shoot them with pellet guns, it might look like the inflatables are crying, which might make the teens feel guilty and like they should change their ways. And tip number ten, if that doesn't work, fill your holiday inflatables with blood like blood balloons. Let's begin, shall we? Matt wrote this, but he sent it to me to record it because whenever he wants to record it, baby Izzy boy is always sleeping and Matt doesn't want to wake him. This is the five people you meet in the taiga. Number one is the bear hunter. The bear hunter is a fierce, skilled, and resourceful hunter, a descendant of a long line of traditional woodsmen who have been hunting bear for many centuries. The bear hunter is also very, very cold as he hunts in the nude, shivering and sniffling through the deep snow and sub-zero temperatures of the permafrost, the howling winds finding every crevice on his naked, naked body. Nevertheless, instead of seeking clothing or shelter when the wind blows, the bear hunter simply hides behind a tree. And besides, he says, he's not that cold anyway, despite being hypothermically blue. While outside anthropologists have tried to teach the bear hunter how to use slain bear's fur for warmth, the hunters say they find the texture too scratchy, the color of the fur never matching their eyes. As for the bear meat, the bear hunters laugh, pointing a single finger into their mouths and saying that the meat is totally grody and bland. The bear hunter subsists off of acorns and pine needles and is utterly nude. Number two is the fireman. The fireman is an ancient tribal god of good fortune who is known to show up in the deepest, darkest corners of the taiga and bestow suffering mortals with life-saving fire, even during the fiercest blizzard or hailstorm. Appearing from behind thick clouds of smoke, the fireman creates fire by doing his traditional fire dance, writhing shirtless and letting tribal oils drip down his muscular physique. The fireman survives off of donations from taiga residents like you and asks only a small gratuity for his yearly calendar series. Number three is Wall-Eyed Jim. Recognized by his distinctive walleye, he can be found throughout Russia, Canada, Scandinavia, Iceland, Japan, Poland, and Alaska. Look for the walleye. You'll know it's Jim by that walleye. Number four is the Finn. The taiga's own true hopeless goof. The Finn is really Oye Olender, a blue-eyed teleconference specialist from Helsinki who was out for a weekend cross-country skiing trip and just kept going, plunging onward for hundreds of miles into the Great White North. Now he frequently spends time lost and looking for home but never finding it. Not the most accomplished cross-country skier, he largely flails and flops his way across the taiga. He skis across beaver dams, falls through thin ice, falls over sudden cliff edges, and falls into large earthen pits. His antics are most popularly seen on the children's television show, Finn, which is Finnish for fall, the stories of which are taken directly from his real life. During his time on the taiga, the Finn has written three books, My Journey, My Journey Outtakes, and My Journey Blooper Reel, all of them bestsellers, and filmed four television series and one movie, In the Taiga, Falling Down. While recently carrying the torch for the Winter Olympic Games, the Finn addressed the United Nations via a teleconference drone he himself created and was awarded the billion-dollar patent to, describing his time on the taiga as being one that has enriched his life and shown him the possibilities there are for each and every one of us if we would merely search out the best in each other. He seemed to be going on in his speech, but then he abruptly fell into a big crevasse. And number five, the taiga-er. 
The unofficial mascot of the taiga, this man dresses in an all-white bodysuit, representing snow, the official weather of the taiga, and going around the taiga handing out ice cream and popsicles. Along his side often strides his favorite pet, a 700-pound Siberian tiger named Jackie, though the tiger, the man, is the real attraction, always there with a nice refreshing ice cube for you to suckle on when you need it the most. Why are you looking at Jackie? Why don't you just why don't you just look over here? The tiger is the real attraction here, guys. He's got treats. No, seriously, don't get too close to Jackie. No, no, guys, no, oh, no! We find an ice cave. We think about it this way. In a regular cave, everything is rock. Whereas in an ice cave, everything that would be rock in a regular cave is ice. Does that mean we can ice skate on the ceiling? After all, the ceiling is made of ice, is it not? Well, yes, but we soon realize that other laws of physics, such as gravity, still very much apply. In an ice cave, there is one fewer obstacle to ice skating on the ceiling than there is in a regular cave, but all of the other obstacles remain. But we know what your most pressing question is. Are the bats in an ice cave ice bats? The answer might surprise you. No, there's no such thing as ice bats. But when we encounter the bats, will we say we have entered the ice battery? The answer might surprise you. No, we'll still just say we have entered the battery. Fortunately, we don't have to go too deep into the ice cave before we encounter the bats. I say fortunately because the floor is very slick, and we have all sprained at least one of our wrists already. But there they are, incredible, hanging from the ceiling as if it were a regular ceiling, except for the fact that they keep falling off of it and having to flap their wings to keep from hitting the icy cave floor. We have entered the battery. The bats hibernated, deep in their torpors, their bodies in states akin to death. The bats dreamt dreams of such pure batness that no human could ever process them. These dreams were like echolocation. They were dreams that humans would never be able to properly perceive. Dreams that humans could never hear without special equipment. And even then, the humans would not be experiencing the dreams in the same way that the bats were. It would be like looking at faded slides of someone else's vacation to another worldly paradise. Still, the equipment was designed, purchased, set up, turned on, and there they were. The deep, torpor dreams of the bats. Dumbed down, simplified, deflated, flattened out, straightened out, ordered and arranged, scrubbed, smooth, restrained, confined, and presented. And even in this hobbled, gutted state, the deep, torpor dreams of the bats, rendered for human observation, fundamentally changed all who observed them. The equipment was imprecise, so it was impossible to tell from which bat the individual dreams came, or if indeed the dreams were actually experienced by the bats individually or collectively. But the observers did their best to divide the dreams into distinct entities. Here are some of them. The first. A bat, at the last moment, realizes that the bug she is about to eat is herself but bug-sized, but it is too late. The bat swallows her bug-sized self. Now, finding herself within the darkness of her own stomach, the bat discovers that all the bugs she has ever eaten are there, alive and re-huntable. She gets to work, re-hunting every bug she's ever eaten while flying around inside her own stomach. This cycle continues, with each smaller version of the bat accidentally consuming a version of herself who is bug-sized relative to her, and who then re-hunts all the bugs she's eaten inside of her stomach, before accidentally consuming a version of herself who is bug-sized relative to her. The observers do not know how long this dream has been ongoing, for they do not know if what they believed to be the initial bat was indeed the initial bat, or if she was also re-hunting all the bugs she'd eaten inside of her own stomach. The second. Hello, says a bat in perfect Russian. Good evening, responds a bat in flawed Portuguese. Try Russian, says the first bat. Like this, asks the second bat in perfect Russian. Exactly, says the first bat, much better. Some observers found this dream the most difficult to shape. Interpretations abound, none of them convincing. A vocal minority declared this dream to be the definitive proof that the deep torpor bat dream observation equipment was unequal to its task. This group attempted to vandalize the equipment and then, caught red-handed, dispersed a thick cloud of resignation letters and fled. The third. 
A bat emerges from the attic of a castle-shaped metal health facility, flaps its wings one time, and then glides on that one flap for the remainder of its lifetime and beyond. Within the glide, the bat ages, turns gray, withers, dies, decomposes, and still its skeleton glides. And eventually, even the skeleton decomposes, and the individual particles, now lighter than air, float forever. It's a bat gliding record that will never be broken, not even by non-bats. Observers like this dream. Sometimes they re-watch it in groups, eating popcorn and applauding at the end. The fourth. Often seen as the third dream's less popular companion dream, this dream begins with a bat who has one leg trapped in a block of cement lying in a parking lot. The bat flaps and flaps, straining upward, but it cannot pull its leg free from the cement nor lift the block of cement off of the blacktop. If the dream stopped there, it would probably be written off as an anxiety dream that humans can relate to. But the cement block sprouts wings of its own and takes to the sky with the bat dangling below it, still flapping, but with a face that makes it look like it's thinking, you absolutely, positively, without a doubt, in no uncertain terms, and without qualification, must be kidding me. One observer said that the block represents him, but his mere suggestion that he is important enough to appear, even as a symbol in the dream of a bat or bats, earned him much scorn, and he was the victim of a harsh prank wherein his colleague strapped his computer into the front seat of his car and then pushed the car off of a bridge, later telling him that his computer had driven his car off of a bridge. When he expressed skepticism, they produced photographs which seemed to verify their claim. The fifth. Three shapes, a sphere, a circle, and a roundish blob, live with a colony of bats, treated as respected members of the colony, treated as equals. The shapes do not behave differently than their natures would lead one to expect. Alas, at some point, one of the bats measures the edge of the circle and discovers that it is actually one femtometer thick, which is a hundred thousand times smaller than an angstrom, which is ten million times smaller than a millimeter, which means that the circle is not a circle and never was a circle, it's a cylinder. Outraged at the cylinder's deception, the bats cast all three shapes out of the colony and eventually they sink into the ground and are forgotten. The sixth. Since it's the holiday season, I should tell you about the Christmas dream that a bat or the bats have had in their deep torpor state. A chill wind blows, it freezes everything it touches. Birds are frozen in mid-flight, falling to the frozen ground with the sound of hardwood striking iron. But bats are immune. Two bats fly together, one in front of the other. The wind blows around them, it avoids them. They fly on into the face of the wind and it moves out of their way, letting them pass before closing in behind them. They seek the source of the wind and they find it. A whale-sized pale worm has emerged from an ocean of slush and has coiled its back end around a sinister fan which it waves frantically outward, generating the freezing wind. The bats latch on to opposite ends of the worm and pull it into two pieces, which become autonomous entities, immediately engaging each other in mortal combat, locked together, squeezing the life out of each other until they both die. A whale, bigger than the worm, beaches itself on top of the worm corpses and opens its mouth, revealing a perfectly conical construction of driftwood on its massive tongue. The bats set the driftwood alight, and then it becomes an ideal bonfire within the whale's mouth which the whale then blows its breath through, the heat billowing out into the world to counteract the effects of the freezing wind. A few of the observers penned an original Christmas carol based on this dream. It's called A Very, Very Bad Christmas, with the second very italicized. The Seventh. The seventh dream is of a group of people wandering into an ice cave. They slip and fall repeatedly as they make their way deeper into the cave. Their wrists take the majority of the punishment. They speculate idiotically about the possibility of ice skating on the ceiling. Eventually, they encounter a colony of bats hanging from the ice ceiling, but the bats keep slipping, falling, waking right before they hit the ground and flying back up to the ceiling, near misses and narrow escapes. The group of people seem to slip into torpor of their own. For 7 minutes and 14 seconds, they stand slack-jawed and staring, their eyes rolled back. Then, as if responding to a cue only they can hear, they lie down together on the floor of the ice cave huddled together, piled atop one another, as if entering a collective torpor of their own, perhaps sharing a collective dream of their own. They mutter something in unison. The observers cannot hear what they say. Well, the ice cave is neat, but our toes are getting numb, and if we don't head back out soon, we might not have more than two or three unsprained wrists left between us, and even those unsprained wrists will take a beating from all the jars they'll be forced to open for everyone else. 
We shuffle cautiously 180 degrees and begin to make our way toward the exit. We say it in unison this time. Do we always say it in unison? We leave. The battery. And now, be welcomed to the campfire of fire? Yes, we've devoted quite a few campfire segments to giving you chills, to scaring you, in other words, over the last couple of years. But did you know that campfires are actually intended to accomplish the opposite effect? That is, campfires are meant to warm you and comfort you, not chill you and scare you. And that got me thinking. Isn't this the time of year when we typically focus on things that warm us, both on our skin and in our hearts? So maybe this campfire shouldn't be a campfire of chills, but rather a campfire of the opposite of chills. A campfire of fire. Think about it. Chills are cold, while fire is hot. Therefore, a campfire of chills would chill you, scare you, while a campfire of fire would warm you, make you feel good. Now, complicating this plan is the fact that no one has ever sent me a heartwarming story, so I was forced to relay one of my own. Is it true? Or did I just make it up to give you a special holiday dose of happy tears, as they say in the heartwarming business? Well, I'll leave that to you to decide, but one thing's for sure. By the time this story ends, your heart will have been so warmed by the campfire of fire that it will have been reduced to a smoldering cinder in your chest. Once there was an old beggar man. His clothes were rags. His shoes were ragged clothes. His hat was a rotten old shoe, and his rag was a tattered hat. He spent his days wandering the streets, asking for something to eat, even just a mustard packet. And he spent his nights sleeping in the warmest snowdrift he could find, which were all equally cold. The old beggar man's name was Garrow, a name his impoverished parents had chosen because they had never heard of an impoverished person named Garrow before, and they hoped it would prevent their son from growing up to be an old beggar man, which we now know did not work. Garrow didn't like Christmas because it was cold, icy, he never got any gifts, he never got any feasts, and it made him miss his family. One day, while Garrow was asking strangers on the street for something to eat, even just a mustard packet, a wealthy gentleman named Bibworth said to Garrow, even just a mustard basket? My good man, you must set your sights higher than that. You must not give the people the option to provide you with such minimal sustenance. Instead, try asking for a chop of finest mutton. Oh no, said Garrow, that would be too presumptuous. Too presumptuous, cried Bibworth. I'll tell you what's presumptuous. Presuming that those you ask for food are incapable of providing you with a chop of finest mutton. Or, if not incapable, unwilling. Try asking me, and we'll see which of us is presumptuous. Garrow had not accused Bibworth of being presumptuous, nor had he implied it in any way. But he said, Um, can I have a chop of the finest mutton? Of course, bellowed Bibworth, but you needn't include the article the. Chop of finest mutton sounds better than chop of the finest mutton, don't you agree? Yes, said Garrow, not wanting to be so presumptuous as to disagree with Bibworth. Servants, shouted Bibworth. Go and fetch this man a chop of finest mutton. And with that, a lot of the people who had been standing nearby scattered in all directions. Garrow had assumed they were just other citizens going about their own business, but now it seemed they were actually servants of this gentleman, Bibworth. You'll soon see the great benefits of asking for what you really want, said Bibworth. Soon, one of the servants returned with a mutton chop. Aha, said Bibworth. See, my good man, it's... He trailed off. His face soured as he looked at the mutton chop. Then he snatched it from the servant's hand and flung it into a nearby barrel of liquid rat poison. You lazy servant, that was far from a chop of finest mutton. That chop of mutton wasn't worthy of kissing the muddy footprints that the chop of finest mutton tracked all over a carpet. Garrow looked at the chop of mediocre mutton sadly where it floated in the barrel of liquid rat poison. It looked delicious. Soon another servant appeared, again brandishing a mutton chop. Bibworth shrieked, snatched the mutton chop from the servant, and flung it into a nearby vat of sewage fresh from the sewer. That chop of mutton couldn't be mistaken for a chop of finest mutton by a primitive automaton that can't even sit upright without sparking, smoking, and finally toppling. Garrow looked at this second chop of mediocre mutton, and it looked good too, even floating in the vat of sewage. 
A third servant arrived with a mutton chop. Bibworth snatched it from the servant's hand. He inspected it closely, feeling up and down its entire length, sniffing it all over, hefting it. Finally, he turned to Garrow with a smile. My good man, all you need to do is ask, and eventually you shall receive your heart's desire, a chop of finest mutton, better than any mustard packet ever created. Great, said Garrow. Now can I have one that your fingers and nose haven't been all over? Bibworth began to splutter with indignation. As he did, his servants began to snicker, chortle, and snort derisively. I am not dirty, he shouted. My fingers are clean. My nose is spotless. Look, my good man, at your own hands, if you want to see what it is that dirty fingers look like. You have shown your true colors, said Garrow, a man more interested in spreading a simplistic ideology than actually assisting your fellow man. And now, if you'll excuse me, I must hurry off to the patent office, for our interaction has given me an idea for a product that will revolutionize food and rescue me from the depths of my beggarhood. And do you know what that product ended up being? Chop of finest mutton packets, the ones you can get with or without a smaller mustard packet included inside the larger packet containing the chop of finest mutton. And now Garrow loves Christmas because he spends the whole season giving chop of finest mutton packets to old beggar men and old beggar women. And he has thousands of rescue dogs, thousands of rescue cats. And he reads classic novels to the elderly but changes the ages of the protagonist to make them elderly too so that the elderly will enjoy them more. The elderly people cry when they thank him for reading to them, which makes Garrow cry too. Tears trickling from the corners of his eyes, which makes everyone who sees it or hears about it cry too. Their hearts getting warmer and warmer and warmer until they begin to seriously wonder what's warmer. Their hearts or the campfire of fire that's warming their hearts. The end. Greg, I can't help but notice that while we're speaking on a phone instead of Skype, it isn't because you're in prison, uh, because you're not in prison. That must be so disappointing for you. Well, yes, it's true that I'm not in prison. On that point, and only that point, you are correct. Uh, so, as usual, you're taking a positive outlook on your failure. See, Grant, I think this gets at the very heart of our many, many misunderstandings. You refuse to adjust your standards of success or failure based on changing circumstances. But circumstances change all the time, and when they do, you simply must be able to adjust your standards accordingly. Take your average failure. Just adjust a few circumstances, and it becomes a rousing success. All right, just tell me how likely it is that you're going to see your new son for the first time by Christmas. Very, 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 very likely which is a level of likelihood I could not have in good conscience predicted had I succeeded under the old set of circumstances or had I failed under the new set of circumstances. All right, so last I knew you'd been arrested for undecorous grand marshalling at a stupid Croton parade thrown in your honor because your pair of terrible crows had scandalized the crowd, which you claimed you were happy about because the crow chief, who has the login information for Out of All Doors, is in prison, which is basically your fault. So your plan, if I remember correctly, was to plead innocent, represent yourself, and then do such a bad job that you'd get the maximum sentence for your crime, which was 30 days in prison, during which you'd get the login info for the from the crow chief. But you're not in prison, so I'm guessing you didn't do a bad enough job at representing yourself to get the maximum sentence, which means you managed to fail at failing. No, no, no. See, again, you're not looking at it in the right way at all. I didn't fail to fail. I was ultimately just too successful to even be able to fail, even when failing was my goal. And besides, considering the present circumstances, succeeding when failure seemed to be the more desirable option turned out to be the better outcome. So actually what happened was that I succeeded in overcoming the adversity of my own intentions, and success won the day. All right, I'm never going to be able to untangle that, so maybe you should just tell me specifically how you succeeded in thwarting yourself. Well, going into the trial, I knew that I was in a real tricky spot. I needed to plead innocent because I needed to reduce the chances of the judge showing me mercy. I needed to represent myself because I couldn't risk the chance of a real lawyer doing a good job representing me and getting me off the hook. I needed to do a bad enough job representing myself that the judge wouldn't actually end up convinced that I was innocent, but I also had to appear to be trying to win so as not to make the judge suspicious. If he thought I was trying to lose, he might question my sanity and show me mercy. I couldn't have that. 
Well, if it's any consolation, Greg, I often question your sanity and yet never feel particularly merciful toward you. Well, that's very kind of you to say, Drent, but unfortunately I couldn't count on the judge being like you. Too much was riding on this. Anyway, in the end, I opted for a safer strategy than trying to pull off an extremely subtle acting job. I sent an anonymous tip to the prosecutor saying that I'm actually a detective. Except the tip didn't say, I'm a detective, it said, Greg is a detective. Very clever. Yeah, it was important that the prosecutor not believe the tip was coming from me, but rather that it was coming from someone other than me. You're a smart guy, and our listeners are smart gals and smart guys, so I'm sure you can all figure out why I did it that way. Anyway, I also sent the prosecutor my magnifying glass covered in fingerprints and my deerstalker hat covered in strands of my own hair, saying that I had found them among Greg's possessions and pointing out that they were conclusive proof that Greg is indeed a detective. Wow, you thought of everything. Yeah, I can be quite cunning when the moment calls for it. Well, since you're apparently two steps ahead of everyone, tell me how the prosecutor finding out that you're a detective would make you lose your case and get the maximum sentence, but then that didn't happen? Are you kidding? I made his whole case for him with that information and evidence. Listen, let me break it down for you. I was charged with undecorous grand marshalling, correct? Look, I can really only go on what you've told me, but you did tell me that you were arrested for undecorous grand marshalling. Just don't make me say that that's correct. All right, well, my idea was this. I would claim to be innocent by virtue of the fact that I was ignorant of the law. And? And that's where the anonymous tip comes in. Greg, I'm obviously not putting the pieces together that you want me to put together, so please just spell this strategy out for me like I'm an infant. Well, I do have an infant son, so I should be pretty good at that. Listen, how could I be ignorant if I'm a detective? Don't you see? I claim to be ignorant of the law, and then the prosecutor was like, Well, Your Honor, he claims to be ignorant, but I happen to know that he's a detective. I don't... Okay, let, let's pretend that you are a real detective, Greg. I don't understand why you being a detective refutes your claim to ignorance. We didn't pretend that I'm a real detective, Grant. I am a real detective. And detectives are, by definition, not ignorant. They detect things. Ignorant people are those who don't detect things. A detective would have detected the law against undecorous grand marshalling before violating it and would therefore be deserving of the harshest punishment for violating, because that violation would have been done willfully and with full awareness of the consequences. But you were ignorant of the law. That's why you violated it. You wanted to break a law, but you broke that one entirely by accident because you had never even come close to detecting it. Um, you know, looking back, I actually think that I had detected the law, just subconsciously. I knew about Croton's prejudiced opinions about crow refinement, for example, and and I knew how seriously they took ceremony. I think my subconscious knew how badly my conscious wanted to get me arrested, and having detected a law that would perfectly suit my purposes, given the circumstances at the time, it sprang into action and went about steering me towards breaking it. Incredible, isn't it? The power of the human mind? In some ways, yes. In other ways, no. Not incredible at all. So so why didn't this strategy work in court? Uh, the judge didn't believe that I'm a real detective. The prosecutor did a terrible job convincing him. When the magnifying glass and the deerstalker hat proved to be insufficient for convincing the judge, I made sure my fingerprint kit accidentally fell out of my pocket in plain sight of the judge. But even that had no effect. I think the judge might actually be a bit simple. How else could you not realize that, similar to the fact that where there's smoke, there's fire, where there's a magnifying glass, deerstalker hat, and fingerprint kit, there's definitely a detective. And in my case, there are now two magnifying glasses and two deerstalker hats because I had to get replacements for the items I sent to the prosecutor while they were in his possession. So in the end, I'm actually probably the person that the judges met who is most obviously a detective. Also, the judge said that my detective kit looked identical to one he'd ordered out of the back of a comic book when he was a child. But I pointed out that the person who'd sold me my detective kit had charged me a lot of money for it. So the judge must have been mistaken. 
But ultimately, the judge didn't believe that whether I'm a detective or not was relevant to the case. Needlessly went on to say that even though it wasn't relevant, he didn't believe I was a detective. And then found me guilty, but didn't send me to prison. Which was initially disappointing, but is now great. Because I just found out that the Crow Chief escaped from prison, and there's a big manhunt going on for him now. Which means all I have to do is find him before the authorities do. And that would be much easier to accomplish as a free man. See, if I had succeeded in the original way that I intended to succeed, instead of this new, better way that I actually succeeded, I'd have to escape from prison myself and evade the authorities myself just to get that login information. Not that I have any doubt that I could have done that, but it's better this way. I think that's clear. Hold on, so you got found guilty but weren't sent to prison. What was your sentence? Just a huge fine. Add it to the total. Exactly. Better men than the court system have tried to use debts to hinder me from achieving my goal, and none of them have stopped me yet. I suppose that's true. You've mostly been hindered by your own incompetence. The mounting debts are more likely to hinder your new son's ability to wear shoes that won't fill him with shame when other kids see him in them. Oh, does, does Tim have expensive taste in shoes? I don't know. I know him as well as you do, Grang. Well, if I found out first, I'll tell you. And if you find out first, you tell me. Uh, this is getting sad, Grang. Don't you have an escaped convict to catch? Actually, yes, I do. Great point. But, before I go, what about a segment called Judge Not, where I share my findings on judges the world over who were bad at their jobs? These wouldn't have to just be legal judges. They could also be dog show judges and baking contest judges and stuff like that. But it's not one of these complaining the system is messed up kind of segments, because at the end of every segment, I would point out how actually, considering the circumstances, the bad judging is actually a good thing. Or if the circumstances don't bear out that point, I would invent some other plausible circumstances in which that bad judging could be a good thing. All right, I hate that idea. Bye. Bye. Retarding the dawn. Retarding the dawn. Retarding the dawn. Hello everyone. Once again you have turned into the very best photography instruction slash philosophy segment embedded in a nature slash outdoor podcast that you can find anywhere in cyberspace slash non-cyberspace. And it's called Regarding the Dawn. I am Cousin Ben and this is Dwayne Leesman. Dwayne... Just because you're sick doesn't mean you're allowed to be rude, and you should not be allowed to throw decorum out with the proverbial baby. Just just say hello. <coughs> oh, uh, that's how it's going to be, is it? <coughs> Very well. I will not allow the forces of art to be blockaded by the navy of Virusonia. I will punch a hole through their impudent attempt to stop our exportation of righteous wares to the entirety of the world and push ever onward. <coughs> Good grief, man. Tone it down a bit, would you? There's children listening. <coughs> well, no, I mean, I, I don't know that for a fact. I mean, I haven't actually seen the demographic charts, but I'm just saying it's highly, highly unlikely that as broad of a reach as we have and as great as our segment is, that there is no children <coughs> at all listening. What? <coughs> well, let's hope not. <coughs> all right, all right, fine. Look, We'll just put a pin in that terrifying hypothetical and move on for now. <clears throat> okay, everyone. So, today we are going to be talking about a very narrow sort of topic for a small, select group of outdoor photographers, but I, I do feel that it needs to be addressed anyway on our show. So, today we will be discussing outdoor wedding photography. I know. I know many of you listeners out there are not wedding photographers, and many of you are wedding photographers who do not shoot outdoor weddings, and a further group of you out there are outdoor wedding photographers who suck really bad. Well, never you fear. Dwayne and I are here to help all three groups of listeners say, I do want to use your great photography teaching to improve myself and become the best outdoor wedding photographers that we can possibly become. <laughs> uh, well... <clears throat> Next time you can write your own vows. I, I mean, uh, jokes, Dwayne. I mean, 
<laughs> well, aren't we just a sassy Sally today, Dwayne? Good grief. <coughs> what, now? Really? You waited until we started recording to get cold feet on the topic? <laughs> Look, just because you can't handle my superior wedding-related sense of humor is no reason to... <coughs> Why, Dwayne, you old softy, you... <laughs> I didn't know you cared so much about oldie-timey romance and the traditional marriage ceremony and... <coughs> oh, sorry, uh, must be your lisp. Well, fine. If you hate marriage so much, then why did you agree to talk about this topic on the show today anyway? I mean, what now? <coughs> Look, I have your notes right here. You clearly said... Oh, no, wait. That was the grocery list. Well, now, wait. So, you hate marriage like you hate it? I mean, hate is a really strong word. Are you sure you don't just have a slightly stronger than usual dislike for weddings? Or you just have, like, uh, performance anxiety about blowing bubbles or throwing rice in large crowds? <laughs> oh, big deal. We all have bad wedding experiences. I mean, it's... <clears throat> oh, come on. You can't really think that's bad enough to warrant a hatred of weddings. Let me tell you something, Dwayne. If anyone has a reason to hate weddings, it's me. And I don't think... <laughs> no. What? No. No. No, no, that's not it. <laughs> yeah, right. It's not like... <coughs> well, you'll, okay. So, so you think that just... You know what, Dwayne? Just because your pants fell down one lousy time in front of a huge Roman Catholic wedding does not mean that you... you dude, you... You see, all right, get this. This one time, I was like 15, and I was forced to attend my aunt's stepson's real dad's third wedding in Mexico. And it's like, you know, it's like really hot down there, right? And like, it was nuts, dude. It was like 200 degrees Fahrenheit, not that Celsius crap. And I was like baking. And, and you know how animals and people can like adapt to their environments, right? Well, like everyone there is not hot at all. Like at all. They're totally fine. Like acting as though they have these air-conditioned clothes on. And me, me, I'm like losing weight by the minute. I'm drenched in the suit that I was forced to wear by my mom. And it, it's not even mine. It's like somebody else's. And it's too tight in the neck. So I was like wearing a turkey bag or something. It was, I was just boiling inside. And then, and then they... They put me in the front row, and they have, like, all these weird traditions down there. And also, because my aunt's stepson's real dad's third wife is, like, some weird combination of Rastafarian, voodoo Catholic, hippie, weirdo, improvisational, cooking show, local celebrity, she plays it fast and loose with, like, all the rules. And at some point in time, in the ceremony, like, around the third hour of it, they ask for people to come up and say anything, like... Anything that is on their heart. And my mom and my aunt start saying to the couple and, like, the seven priests on the stage, like, me, oh, me, me, me. Like, this, my son, uh, he, he's a poet. And he could, like, recite a beautiful poem about love or marriage or salsa or transcendental food teleportation or something. And, and my aunt's stepson's real dad's pastafarian is all over that. I mean, she's, like, clapping and jumping up and down. And she runs down to the front row. Her dreadlocks, dreadlocks all, like flying in the wind and grabs my hand and squeezes all the water left in my body out of it. And she, she drags me up on the stage in front of all those totally ice-cold locals who are having the time of their lives and can't wait until hour six when they break out the personal space heaters and mink stoles and the real spicy finger foods and start the bonfire to fight off the slight chill in the air. And then, like, I slip and fall out of my shoes on the steps because of all the sweat pooling in them. And then Dreads is yanking me up on the the stairs so hard that my elbow by the elbow it, it tears the armpit out of the suit and she doesn't even care and she's still clapping and giggling and hugging me and she whips me in the eye with all their dreads and now I can't see because my eyes all stingy from the patchouli oil and, and I'm crying out one eye sweating like fire hose out of every pore the collar is loosening by the second because of all the weight I'm losing I'm scared I'm nervous I'm panicking I have no poems memorized about anything like this and everyone is staring at me and my aunt's wife's mom steps on thirds dad slaps me on the back so hard my ears are ringing and I can't hear what they're saying and they shove a mic in my hands and since it's Mexico everything smells like gasoline and there's bare wires everywhere and then I get to get I get a little shock you know that tingle in the back teeth that starts and it gets worse as the mic gets more wet from all my sweating and everyone is waiting and watching and I have no clue what to do so I start to improvise a poem about the colors of the desert at night and the bloom of the cactus you know real play to the crowd sort of stuff and like 
I throw in some food references and Bob Marley, and I'm, I'm like crushing it. I mean, it's going awesome. And then, so I start to relax, and I walk around a little bit more, and I get into it, and I steer the poem sort of towards love and marriage and the baby carriage, and like people are really digging the vibe. And a bunch of them like leave their blocks of ice and run up to the front of the church, and they're like throwing rose petals and money and lizards and stuff at me and cheering me on. And then I shift it into high gear and go all Hunter S. Thompson on them, and I, and I fall way into character, and I'm like jumping and getting shocked and screaming and standing on the pulpit, and they're going nuts. I mean nuts for it. And I look back at the couple, and now they're, they're in a massive levitating 62 Impala that has clearly had a hover conversion done somewhere in the late 21st century, and they're all painted up as Day of the Dead sugar skulls, both of them now wearing glowing wedding dresses with six cherub attendants holding each of their trains and fanning them with huge barbecue hot wings, and their eyes are shooting benevolent green laser beams out of them, and honey is pouring out of their mouths, and they sing to me about the lime trees on the east side of the cantina, and then, and then I, 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 uh, I slipped off the pulpit and got knocked out. <coughs> yeah, it was a 62. No, the 62 and 63 have different quarter panels where they meet up with the taillights. It's a totally different shape. There's no mistaking them. <laughs> I, well, it's funny you should say that because as it turns out, what actually happened was that I suffered a massive heat stroke induced panic attack and hallucination event. Or so they told me that night. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I, I woke up in the hospital. I guess I had actually run up on stage and stole the mic from the priests and started screaming, dancing. I climbed on the pulpit. I was tearing off my suit as I attempted to perform a one-man stage play of the movie RoboCop. <laughs> I know. I told everyone it was probably incredible, but uh, I guess it didn't last long because when they tried to get me down, I jumped to the altar and then pretended to like surf on it while screaming, We're going to need a bigger boat! Over and over again until one of the altar boys hit me in the back of the knees with his candle lighty thing. And then I hit my head on the altar and they hauled me out. And what was left of the suit, uh, off to El Hospital, <coughs> couple's honeymoon court. Yeah, well, so, I mean, well, I mean, weddings, so, so, like, look, all right, I'll go. Yeah, you're right. I, I hate weddings, too, Dwayne. Kids today only like video games. It makes the gentleman of gentlemen's mills ill. Physically ill. The hat has pneumonia and the dandy has walking pneumonia right now because of the fact that kids today only like video games. Well, they decided to do something about it. So here's a selection of this year's Best Gentleman's Mills Educational Toys from the Little Learners Learning Series. Number one, Catbacks and Kippers for Little Skippers. Junior will master all forms of unsafe weightlifting techniques years before his first fitness emergency. Number two, Frog Dissector. It dissects, you watch and learn. Never rib it while Frog Dissector is nearby, not even in jest. Number three, Molten Globe. Molten Globe ships with a realistic molten core, but with the rest of the globe made of regular plastic, it's never long before the whole globe is as molten as its molten core. Molten Globe! Number four, Book of Fact. The number of fact in this book is subtly revealed both in its title and in this description. Number five, Gentleman's Mills Chemistry Set. The gentleman's vision of a chemistry set emphasizes beakers in a big way. You'll be surprised by what percentage of this chemistry set is 100% beakers. Number six, Math Man. The dandy created this original super-powered character to convince kids that math can be masculine. Number seven, What Fish Eat. This classic wooden box is filled to the brim with what fish eat, or rather, what one particular fish ate right before it died. Buy it and open it to learn what it was. Number eight, fun, funny constellation chart. This fun and funny chart of the constellations educates a child about the funnest and funniest constellations, such as Orion's diaper, Aries the googly-eyed ram, and the number 420. Number nine, physics blob. This blob of matter abides by all natural laws of physics. Number ten, tinker logs. This innovative hybrid of tinker toys and Lincoln logs is not the grotesque, unholy monstrosity some predicted it would be. Want proof? We're selling it. 
Number 11, Guaranteed Guarantier. We fully guarantee that our guarantee will guarantee anything that you want it to at a deafening volume. You're in a position to back up its claims, so let these guarantees howl and screech at full volume. Number 12, This Old Bounce House. Bob Villa comes to the side of Junior's old rickety unsafe bounce house and shows him how to check it for lead paint, unsound plumbing, and brings the electric up to code. If he finishes early, he'll install a beautiful hickory crown molding. Number 13, Toy Neck. This plush replica of a neck teaches kids everything they've ever wanted to know about the human neck except for what it feels like to throttle one. Number 14, Historically Accurate Jump Rope. This jump rope is made to the exact specifications of the jump ropes of the late 1990s. Jumping rope has never been more like jumping back in time. Number 15, Alphabet Blocks. Each one of these 26 small wooden blocks has all 26 letters of the alphabet crammed onto its surface, though many of the letters are legible. Number 16, Educational App. Your youngster will learn the things of our dreams via phone buttons and speakers and visual display. And number 17, Road Salter. Junior pedals his little big wheel around, applying road salt throughout your hallways. Close your eyes. Don't let any light in. Is there any way that you could make your eyelids temporarily less translucent? If so, do that. If making them permanently less translucent is all you're capable of, well, I guess you'll have to settle for that. Lie down on a surface that you find comfortable, and please use your own criteria to evaluate the surfaces you're considering. Relax. If your teeth are involuntarily clamped together, start with a piece of stiff paper and then wedge thicker and thicker objects between them. If your teeth are voluntarily clamped together, then unless you're trying to prevent a dangerous insect from escaping into the room from within your mouth, you should choose to unclamp your teeth. You find yourself in a huge canopy bed in a decaying mansion. It is night. Snow falls and piles up outside. You are in a third-story bedroom. You hear the sound of clanking chains, and you sit upright in bed, your nightcap flopping foolishly into your stupefied face. You see me in the room, glowing faintly, wearing the very chains that you heard clanking before. I clank them some more. When you see it's me, even though I'm a ghost, your face becomes disrespectful. I tell you that you're going to be visited by three spirits tonight. I already know what they're going to tell me, you say. They're going to tell me that everything's pretty much fine, and I should just keep doing what I'm doing. No, I cried. That's not what they're going to tell you. And besides, a guy I had a class with in grad school wrote a story where that happened, where a character was visited by three spirits who told him everything was fine and to just keep doing what he was doing. And I thought it was hilarious, and I wished I had written it, and I've always been tempted to just steal it, but I've always resisted the temptation, but now you've done exactly that. No, you say, because I never heard that guy's story, so when I said it, it was a wholly original thought. Disgusted, I turn clankingly and clankingly exit the room by passing clankingly through a solid wall. Time passes. Then the room is filled with light. The first spirit has arrived. It's the ghost of visualization exercises past. She's a small, wispy, extra-ethereal spirit wearing many layers of flowy, glowy robes. Take my hand, she says in a mellifluous voice, and she grasps you by your left pinky, the smallest of your two smallest fingers. The window in the bedroom bursts open, and moving your legs as if you're pedaling an invisible bicycle down a too steep hill, you and the ghost of visualization exercises past fly off into the night as your nightshirt billows around you unflatteringly. You fly to the past. There you and the spirit watch yourself as you participate in some of the earliest visualization exercises. The one where you regarded a frog, the one where you found a puppy in the autumn woods, the one where you cracked open the harvest moon and squash came out. You look so relaxed, you were so compliant, such a good sport. You watch yourself with wide, wet eyes. How young I look, you say in a hushed voice. How at peace I look. Just watching yourself visualize so relaxedly makes you start to feel relaxed, but the spirit whisks you away back to your cold room. No, spirit, you cry. Let me watch myself do old visualization exercises for a little longer. But she is gone, and you are alone in the cold, dark room. Time passes. 
Then a new spirit appears. He's huge. He's a giant, jolly, bearded man, and he throws a whole live turkey into his mouth and eats it as if that's fine to do. Har, 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 he exclaims more than laughs. I am the ghost of visualization exercises present. Chilly fingers caress your spine, which is a perhaps excessively artful way to say that you become frightened. You know how the visualization exercises have been trending, how unrelaxed and non-compliant you've been, what a bad sport you've been. Take my hand, booms the spirit, and he grabs your whole body so just your head and feet are sticking out of his huge fist. Then he leaps through the bedroom wall, destroying it. Off you fly together through the night, he laughing like a doltish oaf, you chiming in with some undignified grunting. To the present, shouts the spirit. You alight together on a roof and look down into the street, which is now bathed in daylight. Morning has come. There I am, you say, perched on the spirit's open palm. Yes, he says, let's watch. Down in the street, you see you buy a hot cross bun from a small boy with a child-sized food cart. You watch as you bite into the hot cross bun and discover that it has a lemon jelly filling, which you were apparently not expecting because you freeze for a moment, your face reddening, and then you turn and hurl the hot cross bun high into the air over a house as you bellow a nonsense string of syllables more obscene than any known obscenity. The boy cries out, Relax! Please relax! But you do not relax. You cannot. Your body is overflowing with unrelieved tension. Perhaps if you had dealt with some of that tension before this moment, you would be able to tolerate the unpleasant surprise of lemon jelly within a hot cross bun. But you didn't deal with the tension, so now it's spilling everywhere. You watch from the rooftop with the spirit as you lift the boy above your head and hurl him through a plate glass window. Then you kick his food cart into splinters and stomp all the remaining hot cross buns scattered on the pavement until they are mashed flat, their crosses illegible. Relax, shout passers-by, but they don't know that you can't. Wow, says a hot person of the sex that you are attracted to, looking at you without any attraction whatsoever. That person is so tense. In your state of a complete absence of relaxation, you have produced a sledgehammer, and you are whirling around like that lunatic tune in Taz the Devil, smashing everything smashable, your voice one sustained shriek. You look away when you see you take the sledgehammer to your own feet. Spirit, you say, covering your eyes with your hands, take me home, I can bear no more of this. When you take your hands from your eyes, you are back in the dark, cold bedroom alone. The hole in the wall is gone. Time passes. And then the third spirit appears, tall, clothed in a dark robe, its face invisible within its deep hood. Who are you, you ask? The spirit says nothing, only exudes foreboding with its foreboding presence. Well, you're obviously just death, you say. The spirit crooks a finger at you, and it's bony. Also, you say, there was a Dickens Christmas Carol thing last year. I think it was a campfire of chills. It was better than this. The spirit puts its arm around you. Reality swirls, and you find yourself in a graveyard at dusk. A cold rain falling as a sparsely attended funeral is wrapping up. And so, says the pastor, no one cared that this person died because they steadfastly refused to properly relax, and as a result, they ended up as a grotesque with a bad funeral. I mean, look around. The pastor and the sparse attenders leave. Then some rat-like grave diggers appear. They dig a hole and dump the casket inside, but not before prying the lid off and stealing a familiar, it's not easy being right all the time, t-shirt from within. Hey, you say, that's my shirt. The spirit says nothing as the grave diggers scoop dirt back into the open grave until the casket is buried. Then, overtaken by simultaneous coughing fits, the grave diggers leave. Spirit, you say, whose grave is that? The spirit points its bony finger at you. That's what I was going to guess, you say. How can I prevent this outcome? The spirit says nothing, just looms. Well, I guess it's over then, you say. I'll just open my eyes now. Hold on, I say, clankingly appearing from behind a gravestone, my body still very much draped in chains. First of all, this isn't death. It's the ghost of visualization exercises future. And second of all, you can prevent this outcome by doing a better job of participating in the visualization exercises like you're supposed to, by doing them right. And with that, you find yourself back in the dark, cold bedroom. Will you heed the words of the spirits and me? Only you can decide that. And with that, open your eyes and return to your life. But as you do, bring the peace of knowing that there's still time to avoid a horrible fate with you this month, even when you're inside of one or more doors.
Thank you for listening to the 25th episode of Out of All Doors. I'm Adam Drent, and I would like to thank Matt Martin, Andy Poppenfuss, Graham Lynch, Chris Nichols, Ben Bird, and Aaron Eikenberry for their contributions, written, audible, and technical. And thanks to Casey By, Chris Nichols, and J.J. Evans for making all the music used in the show. If you'd like to get in touch for any reason, you can send emails to the show at outofalldoors at gmail.com or me personally at adamdrent at gmail.com. You can also call or text me at 574-518-1983. I'd love to hear from you. And I'm active on Twitter, too. I'm at HugePop. Here's another thing I'd love. If you went on iTunes and rated this podcast, maybe wrote a review, maybe even subscribe. And be sure to check out my website, HugePop.com, where you can find links to my other projects, including Bedtime Stories, One Man's World, and the music I make as the mispronouncer. Bedtime Stories and One Man's World are also on iTunes if you search for them under podcasts, and you can rate and review those, too. And a Bedtime Stories app is also available for all smart-style phones. And also, extra thanks to Chris Nichols for putting all the previous episodes of Out of All Doors and One Man's World on YouTube. They're at the channel Huge Pop, written as one word. We'll be back in a month with episode 26 of Out of All Doors.